0: Welcome to the Smart Planning 101 podcast, episode 20.
1: I'm Nicole Whip and I'm your host. Stay in control of your future, whether legally, financially, or with your health. Learn the latest strategies and best practices from national experts. Help yourself, help mom and dad make the right decisions. Welcome to Smart Planning 101. Here's Nicole Whip.
0: Hello, smart planners. Today, I am really pleased to be able to bring David Zampano onto the show. David Zampano is an attorney and a CPA, and he'll be talking to us today about irrevocable pure grantor trusts. And this is sort of one of those things that people don't know anything about that can be a crucial component of a really good and effective estate plan. But because very few people really understand it, and this also includes attorneys, by the way, um, it's not necessarily always being used. Although, that being said, there are thousands of attorneys nationwide that use the irrevocable pure grantor trust or a version of it. And so he's going to talk about what it is and why you'd want to use it today. And I'm also going to have him talk a little bit about himself. But I'd like to tell you a little bit about him because he isn't going to tell you everything that I'd want you to know. Um, Dave is also the founder and senior partner of the Estate Planning Law Center, which is an estate planning and elder law center that has offices in New York and Florida. His firm serves as a model law firm to hundreds of law firms across the country. And he's also the founder of the Medicaid Practice Network and Medicaid Practice Systems, LLC, as well as the co-founder of Lawyers with Purpose, which is a national network of attorneys that is dedicated to all of these topics, including estate planning, asset protection, Medicaid planning, and business development. And so Dave has literally educated thousands of attorneys nationwide on not just this topic that we're going to be discussing today, but many others, because I think that um, he is considered by many to be, a real asset protection and asset preservation specialist. And since that's something that's near and dear to my heart and to many of the um, hearts of my clients, I really think that this is a great topic for us to be discussing today. On a completely different note, Dave is actually the person that really inspired me to pursue the practice of elder law and estate planning because he showed me through the use of this trust and many other things how I could really make a difference in the lives of others. And some people may think that that sounds a little bit cheesy, but I have to tell you that that really is what the motivating factor behind all of this is for me. And so I really thank Dave for that because he really brought me to a place of being extremely happy in a law practice. And showing me the way. And I think you'll see why he was able to do that just from this interview, because he's really the kind of person that's able to take extremely complex topics and break them down into easy and digestible ways of understanding, which is really important in order to make kind of good, smart planning decisions. Because if it's really complicated and you don't understand the gobbledygook behind it, you're not going to do it because why would you? That would just be crazy. Dave has a way of really helping. You understand. And so that's what this interview is all about. So, in order to understand this very complex topic, I've broken this topic up into two separate episodes. And in this first episode, Dave is really giving us an overview of. You know, what is a revocable living trust? What are tax trusts? And what is this irrevocable pure grantor trust? And how do they differ sort of from the thousand foot view so that you can sort of get an idea of what the other trusts are so you can compare and contrast what they are? He also gives an explanation about why, even though you may not have heard about this trust in the past, that it works, and he knows that it works, and he explains how, based on the common law of the country, that it works. And so that's this first entire episode. In the next episode, we will be getting to the actual nitty gritty of exactly what does this trust do, how does it work, and how does it protect your assets and yourself and your family. Please join me in welcoming Dave Zimpano to the show, and thank you for listening. How's okay. that? Hello, Dave Zimpano. Welcome to the Smart Planning One Hundred and One Podcast.
2: Well, thank you for having me, Nicole.
0: So before we get started, Dave, I just want you to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and why you're qualified to talk about Irrevocable Pure Grantor trusts with us today.
2: Um, Well, you know, Nicole, it's always a loaded question, uh, asking the guy speaking why he may or may not be qualified. Um, But I guess what I can probably do is tell you some of my credentials. Um, I've been practicing a little over 22 years. Uh, I'm a CPA and an attorney, and when I came out of law school, um, in 1992, I looked at the, um, demographics, and it said by the year 2010, one in five Americans would be over the age of 65. And in my community, in 1992, we are already at 23%. So I, I looked at, as a, an attorney saying, where do I want to create a career? And I decided, um, working with seniors and it 's been a great uh, journey. Um, my journey has taken me uh, to uh, really serving thousands and thousands of clients, and I think that 's what, what is probably one of the most critical things that that I celebrate whenever I speak about um, what we 're talking about the trust in particular, because it 's all about what the client needs and wants after serving several thousand clients and hearing their needs and seeing their reactions. I think that's the best indicator of a qualification. Secondly, um as a CPA and an attorney, um, it, it requires two different disciplines to look at everything. One is from more of an analytical perspective and the other one is more from a personal planning perspective. And um and so I devoted my whole practice uh to this area of serving seniors and I have as a result have been a lead trainer for virtually most of the major national estate planning organizations, including the American Academy of Estate Planning Attorneys, the National Network of Estate Planning Attorneys, Wealth Council, um, um, the American Association of Attorneys, CPAs, and a whole myriad of other national legal organizations, financial institutions. I've been training over the last 15 years, since about 2000, uh, about 13 years, since about 2000, 2001 time frame. And uh, as a result, uh, I've been sought out and uh, quoted in the Wall Street Journal, been interviewed on National Public Radio, um, all in the area of estate planning, asset protection, and Medicaid. um, But my passion is people. Uh, I really anchor it back to my own grandparents and having to deal with my grandparents as they aged. Um, My grandfather dying peacefully at the age of 81 and my grandmother living 15 more years, spending the last several years of her life in a nursing home. And, and really contrasting those two experiences personally and living through it has made me make made a commitment to make sure that everyone that will go through this is fully informed and is in full control to ensure they get the best result possible.
0: Right, because in elder law, that really what it comes down to on some level is helping the clients remain in control when they actually are not in control any longer. There's some element of helping them retain control even in that instance, right?
2: Yeah, I I think it really comes down to three issues when when we're talking about planning for seniors. It's unfortunately become so commoditized by people trying to make a quick dollar. We lose the, the the industry loses the vision of what we're trying to accomplish, Um, One of the reasons I created Lawyers with Purpose as an organization was to focus on the client. And really, there's three key things we're going to look at. Number one is to preserve the legacy of our seniors. What is it about your life? What is it about what they've, I mean, I know so many seniors, they walk around the house and shut the light off behind each other to preserve that few extra cents to be able to leave their family. What else did they do over the life that they want to make sure is captured and shared with their family other than just their money? So, really preserving their legacy and and giving access to their family to learn their story and understand what made them who they are. The second part, which I think is where most people focus, is protecting their autonomy. That means making sure that our seniors are able to stay in control um, and get care they need at home if possible, least restrictive means to meet their needs, but most importantly, to get the care they need early on so they don't need advanced care. A lot of times, most people in nursing homes are there because they failed to plan appropriately earlier and to delay that by virtue of the little things they could do along the way to provide that infrastructure in their, in their lives to alleviate the need for more care down the road. Um, so that's the second most critical part is preserve their, uh, preserve their legacy, protect their autonomy both personally and financially, making sure they have the way to never become a burden to their loved ones. And then the third thing we want to do as we want to prepare them for the rest of their lives. Most, most people have been sold into a bill of goods that you're going to work, you're going to go turn 65, you're going to retire, and then you're going to plan your long-term exit strategy. Uh, today, 65 is not a long-term exit strategy. Um, we're, we're probably, most seniors don't like to hear this, but we're probably expected to live well in excess of 100. Um, currently, there are about 50,000 uh, centenarians, and over the course of the next 25 years, we expect that to grow tenfold to about a half a million. And so most people are thinking, oh, I just, you know, i retired. Now i got to figure out how I'm going to make it till I die. Uh, it's really very different. It's how do I live the rest of my life, which is going to be long and prosperous. Many of us in today's society will be retired longer than we worked. And so how do you prepare for that? And what's at risk uh, in this new lifestyle? And one of the key things comes back to what you said. Uh, Nicole, which is about protection, asset protection. Because if we're going to live long term now, we need to make sure we have the financial resources to do so. Now again, that's a critical role, not the sole role as you and I know. But that, having that financial security and protection enables us then to focus on our personal security and our, and our, uh, legacies.
0: That's right. So that is one of the reasons why this irrevocable pure grantor trust, which we we affectionately know as the IPUG, is so important as a component of that strategy. But a lot of people have no idea what it is. So can you give us a little idea of what is an irrevocable pure grantor trust and how does it differ from a traditional irrevocable trust?
2: Oh, okay. Um, I was going to say, how many hours do we have? No, <laughs> I, I think I could do this in about five minutes. And um, let's talk, first of all, let's get away from the legal terms. Irrevocable Pure or Trust is a legal technical term that really relates to tax law. I want to get away from that term for right now. And let's talk simple talk, which, which, which really explains what these trusts are. If we look at trust planning, and we look back 10, 15 years, Really, there. Were, if you look over the history of time, there is basically one trust out there. Um, it was an irrevocable trust, and this trust has been around for probably well over a century. You know, the DuPonts, the Kennedys, you've heard of them having these trust funds, the big wealthy, ultra-wealthy. And those trusts um, were have the longest standing, um, and they really relate to one single topic, tax, estate tax planning. And what that ultimately came down to is during the, uh, you know, the, uh, the 20th century, during the 1900s, it became very expensive to die with money. Um, at some points, um, when you died with over amounts that exceeded certain levels set by the government, um, and they could have been as little as $100,000, as little as 20 or 30 years ago, if you died with more than $100,000 or something of that nature, you could be giving as much as 60%. To the Government when you died, so what happened was people started setting up these irrevocable trusts to avoid the estate tax when they died because it was so confiscatory it just took so much of what the people had worked for now that is traditionally the trust that has existed um, for well over a hundred years, and these trusts uh, really had one single primary purpose to minimize or eliminate the federal estate tax now there was three main criteria of these irrevocable trusts. One was that once the person created it, they could no longer benefit from that trust. So I would have to take my money, put it in this trust, and never again be able to receive any benefit from it. The second criteria was that once I created it, um, I could not ever change it. So I set it up for my kids or whoever, and it was set up and it couldn't be changed. Uh, And the third criteria was that I could not control it any longer. So once I created this trust, I had to set my terms. I could never change them. And once I created it, I would have to give my money up, put it in the trust, be controlled by the rules I set, and I could never, ever again have any say in how it's managed or what occurs with it. So those trusts, obviously, um, not many clients prefer them. But if you think about the confiscatory rates of an estate tax, Uh, People would prefer to give up their money and get it to their family, give up control and the right to change it in exchange for not having to lose 60 or more percent to the government at that. Now, even today, the estate tax is 40 percent, but it's on a much higher number. Um, It's it's currently with people more than $5.3 million or 10.6 if you're married. So if you look at that, um, it doesn't apply to many people anymore. But the problem is, when most people think of irrevocable trust, those are the trusts they think of: ones you can't control, you can't change and you can't benefit from. And that's what people, most people's perception is of an irrevocable trust. The truth is, that it is an irrevocable trust, and it's the most long-standing type of irrevocable trust, but it's not the one used very much anymore. There's another type of trust an irrevocable pure grantor trust, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. But before I talk about this other irrevocable trust, I want to go back to a second type of trust that's really only about 25 years old. It probably started coming out in the late 80s. Um, And so um, late 80s, early 90s, we came to know the revocable living trust, okay? And basically, that was a trust you created while you were living. And a revocable living trust serves a different purpose. This, When this came out, the primary benefit of it to the participants, was that the person who created it could control it, could change it any time they want, and they could benefit as much as they want. So this is the uh, complete dichotomy, the exact opposite of what we have come to know as an irrevocable trust. And so people loved revocable trusts because they, they can control, change it whenever they want, obviously until they died. Now, the, the, the use of revocable living trusts was predominantly twofold. Number one was to avoid probate. In many states, the process of getting a will um, approved by the, the courts and getting the executor appointed, that process called probate, was very complicated and costly. So um, people started utilizing the revocable living trust to avoid probate so that upon their death, the assets can go directly to the people of their choice without the unnecessary burden or cost of probate. Now, the secondary reason for, for revocable living trust is if you became disabled. We, I always tell clients in the old days, it was simple. You lived and then you died,
0: right? <laughs> right. Uh,
2: but, right? But life ain't simple anymore. You don't die anymore. Now, we know we all die, but before we live and when we die, there's this whole middle period now called incompetency. And so this whole period of incompetency really in the old days, if you go back to the 70s and 80s, um, and even in my own experience, when my grandfather died in 1981 in the early 90s when my mother needed a nursing home, it was it was looked upon, it was frowned upon by the family to even consider putting a loved one in a nursing home. You took care of your own. Now, in today's society, we know it's so complicated, it's very difficult to try and take care of your own. Um, but in any event, the revocable living trust was secondarily used as a way to manage your assets when you became incapacitated. So it gave authority to someone else to make decisions about your money, um, consistent with whatever you wrote in the trust document. So the revocable living trust was the opposite of what we've known as the irrevocable. So the traditional irrevocable trust was a tax planning vehicle, no control, no right to benefit, no right to change. If we go back and look now at the revocable living trust, which is a relatively new phenomenon, this was a trust you could create, you could control, you could change, and you could benefit from. Think of it as an open box. You can put stuff in and take stuff out whenever you want. So those are the two dichotomies of trust that have existed, um, you know, for a long period of time. Well, in 2001, um, uh, something happened. Uh, President Bush and Congress passed EGTRA, the Economic Recovery Act of 2001, which significantly changed the estate tax rules. So back when EGTRA was created, you know, uh, prior to EGTRA, an estate of $675,000 or more would be subject to an estate tax of an excess of 50%. Um, after EGTRA, um, it actually eliminated the federal estate tax by 2010, um, but as we know, the rest of the story, it didn't stick because past you know, the administrations after the Bush administration changed all that, predominantly the uh, Obama administration. So... Um, Again, in in 2000, where we had a $675,000 limit, today we have a $5.3 million limit. So it affects far less people, right? In fact, statistics show us estate tax planning really applies to only 2 in 1,000 people. So that's two-tenths of a percent. Wow, Um, that's low. Yeah, yeah, 99.8% of Americans aren't concerned about estate taxes at the federal level. And so what happens is this estate tax that we've – I'm sorry, this irrevocable trust that we've all heard about for so many years is no longer relevant to 99.8% of the people. Now, on the flip side, everybody loves the revocable living trust. That becomes a whole wave in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, and it's become like – you know number one tool used by people. The problem with the revocable trust on the call is that it's an open box. And the number one rule in asset protection is if you can get it, so can your creditors and predators. And that's where the IPUG was created. Because what I did in the early 2000s, I looked at how trusts are designed. And I said, well, why do we have to create a trust with all those tax rules when the tax don't apply? But Lawyers for so many generations had been trained in the tax application of trust. They didn't understand. They thought I talked a foreign language. But with my upbringing and my drive, I don't go away easily. So I continued the conversation and um, in 2001 I introduced the IPUG nationally. And I'm proud to say it's been used in over 40 states for for the last 13 years. Um, and, And what makes it a very unique trust is, listen, there's other versions of it out there now. Um, IPUG is our trademark name. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to explain to you what an IPUG is and how it's different. So if we think back about the tax trust, an irrevocable trust where there's no control, no right to change it, and no right to benefit from it, nobody likes those. The other side of it is we have the revocable trust where you can have full control, change it any time you want, and you can have full access. Well, when I started looking at people um, in the 90s and serving clients during the 90s, when I got to 2000, I realized, you know, there's another way to do this. So in the legal world, so I'm going to turn into a lawyer here for a minute. In the legal world, there's, there's three different things. There's estate planning. That's the lowest level that we do. So that can be as simple as a will, a health care proxy, and a power of attorney. Estate planning is making some plan for your estate financially while you're alive and after you're dead. It's a tradition that was done with a will and a power of attorney and a health proxy. So that's, that's what I would call the, the first tier level of estate planning. Now, that is advanced to things now that we know as revocable living trust. That is part, that is estate planning. Um, it's just another tool we use now in addition to wills, health proxies, and powers of attorneys. Now we have a thing called a revocable living trust. But again, that is estate planning. Um, The third level, so I'm going to skip the second level, the third level is tax planning. And we're talking about estate tax planning if we have to avoid estate tax. Now, again, we said that applies to 0.2%. So that was kind of out of out of the picture. So we have this whole middle section where people want more than estate planning but don't need tax planning, and we call that asset protection planning. So this middle genre of planning is really a higher level than estate planning, but a lesser requirement than tax planning. And so when I looked at this, I looked at the law and how it applied. And a lot of lawyers fought me for many, many years and still fight me to this day, I'd be honest to tell you, saying, you know, that I'm a snake oil salesman or that there's some craziness about this. The beauty is there's one distinction between me and them. A lot of lawyers rely on the law, but they don't read it. They just do what they've always done because that's what they were always taught. I did what I was always done, but I also learned the law and the reasoning behind it so that when things change, you can figure out what can change in the document. And what's exciting is over the last 13 years, over 40 different states, over 500 to 1,000 law firms have used these trusts, and we're still here, and there's not been a single case because they're not based on anything radical. In fact, in 2010 to quiet all the naysayers. I actually did a law review article. Now, Most clients clients don't understand what a law review article is, but it's a written analysis, a legal analysis um, that is written. uh, I wrote mine at Syracuse University. Um, About a 1,000 people requested, um, and uh, 11 people got to do a law review article. So obviously they liked my topic. And I did a complete legal analysis of all the objections that traditional lawyers would have to an IPOC. Um, And we showed under the law of all 50 states why they work. And here's why they work, essentially, Nicole. Because what happens is an IPUG does not rely on any state-specific law or rule. It relies on the common law of the nation. Now, the common law actually goes back to the year 1532 with the statute of uses, the common law with regard to trust. So we have long histories of how trust works. So, the, so for the client, what does the common law mean? Well, we have two types of law. We have statutory law and we have common law. Statutory law is the laws where there's a law on the books. So you can only go 55. You have to have the health inspector in if you run a restaurant. Those are all laws and rules that the government creates. That's called statutory laws. But to understand living in America, you can't have a law for every single thing. So that's why there's lawsuits in courts courts are what we call the courts of equity and they resolve the lawsuits of which there's no specific statutory answer. so they say well based on the statutes that exist and based on your fact pattern here's how we think it should apply and so this common law is really the law of the courts over hundreds of years what have courts traditionally ruled in these areas and in my law review article i did a complete analysis of the common law in all fifty states and showed how all of the elements of the ipug Trust are absolutely 100% consistent with the common law, all the treatises, all the the legal treatises that have been written on the topics of trust, and basically distilled all these this in, insanity that people were thinking that what I was doing was out of the ordinary. In fact, all I was doing is what the law provides, but I let go of all the tax planning. See, people have been habitually... Um, train in taxes, 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 taxes. But again, it doesn't apply to anybody anymore. Well, it does to 0.2%. So for the 99.8% of Americans, we had to create a way for them to protect what was important to them and and um, still give them some of the things they like. So the result was the IPOC trust, and here's what it does.
0: This concludes part one of my interview with Dave Zampano about irrevocable pure grantor trusts. In part two, Dave is going to dive into the specifics of how an irrevocable pure grantor trust works and why you may want one. And he's also going to give some examples of times that it should be used. To read the show notes from this episode and to access Dave's law review article that he talks about, please visit smartplanning101.com forward slash 20.
1: Now that you're starting to get the knowledge you need to make better planning decisions, don't let your journey stop there. You can gain access to Nicole's incredible guide, A Will is Your Ticket into Probate Court, the five crucial facts about wills everyone needs to know right now. And the best part is you can download it for free by going to smartplanning101.com wills right now. Time is flying by, so don't wait another day to download this must-have guide. And we'll see you next time on the Smart Planning 101 podcast. The information contained within this podcast does not constitute legal or financial advice. It's for general informational purposes only. For advice specific to your situation, consult with your legal or financial professional.